Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the revised common lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm a discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Ethan Linder. Ethan is a, a dear friend of mine and a pastor at my local church, one of my pastors, and uh, a, uh, an old friend and a fantastic preacher. I've always wanted to have him on the show because I love the way he preps, the way he thinks through texts, and how they interact with our lived experience here and now. He's very much attuned to what it means to really live a text and to preach in a way that makes those connections between ancient texts and our own living world now. So just so happy to have Ethan on the show for the first time. Our text this week is going to be Psalm 71, Psalm 71. Uh, We'll read it for you if you're listening to this while you're doing something else. But if you're sitting while you're listening, you know, feel free to turn there to Psalm 71 because we'll be digging in deep during this hour. As you're listening to the show today, if you're enjoying it, just press the uh, share button on your podcast player app of choice, and then you can forward it uh, through a private message or a social media post to let other people know about the show. Uh, The best way to get the word around the show is through that word of mouth. So we really appreciate that if you'd be willing to do that today, Um, as long as you're enjoying it, which I'm sure you will. So uh, yeah, and if you want to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways that you can become a patron saint of the show. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ethan. So yeah, Ethan, if you'd be willing to read Psalm 71. So the the lectionary just has verses 1 through 6 listed. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe we would start with that. Are you okay with that? That's great. Just read one through six. We'll discuss that. And if in the second segment we want to expand, then we can do it then. So that'll kind of give us a, a focus text. Let's yeah, for sounds it. great. One through six. What version are you using today? Using NIV 2011. Great. Yeah, basic, but just edgy enough. <laughs> Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge, to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you're my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth, I've relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb, and I will ever praise you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we ask that as we look at this psalm, these first six verses, and then more beyond, that you would open up Ethan and I's eyes and ears, both of our head and of our heart. May we be receptive to what you might be saying to us and through us. And may the same be true for our listeners separated as they are by time and space from this moment. But for them, this is a present moment. And so even now I pray in advance that their own eyes and ears, both of head and heart, would be opened up, receptive to what the word is speaking to them and in them and through them for others. 
We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a tiny section, I'll admit, although it is a long song. So you got to make it, if you're going to do a selection, you got to stop somewhere. And that's like right before it gets darker. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to the edgy stuff in a moment. But beautiful. I'll say right out of the gate, the one thing I did look up right before you got here is I was like, why these, just these six? Is there a, I looked at the other lectionary passages to see, is there, is it because it's being quoted? Nope. So it's just wimpiness. They just had a short song. So <laughs> we'll expand it the moment we're ready, whether it's this segment or next segment, but just starting with verses one through six, what do you notice? What jumps out at you? I think there's a desire that feels to me like a core human need at the very beginning of this psalm. So mm. this idea that we desire to take refuge in God, right, which is uh, the core human need of safety or protection, maybe. But furthermore, like desire not to have that trust in God be let down in a way that would expose us both to personal pain, one, I think, and two, to like public disgrace. This verse, mm. let me never be put to shame. And that feels especially important when the God that we trust in as a refuge may very well, as he did in the psalmist's life and in all of our lives, uh, allow us to be exposed to trouble that it seems that God would be interested in preventing were he a refuge in the way that we would conceive a refuge, right? Mm -hmm. If he was trustworthy to hide us from exposure to, to violence or from openness to the pain that life inevitably brings us. So part of this seems like it's coming out of this deep desire for God to be our refuge in a specific way and knowing that in our disappointment, right, in our reckoning with the suffering that life brings us, we have to reckon with what it means for God to be our refuge if he doesn't protect us in the way we expected. (laughs) Right, right. In you, Lord, do I take refuge. So then there's this begging to be rescued, delivered, to be a rock of refuge. But of course, the whole, it's implied in the whole thing that, yeah, actually, I am exposed. <laughs> yeah. But the statements, there's, there's a mix of petition and of just like declaration. There's petition, you know, be my refuge in verse three, right? Yeah. Um, and four, rescue me. Yeah. But in verse one, it's, I take refuge in you. Or verse, end of verse three. You are my rock and my fortress. So there's this mix of like declaring you are my refuge, even though I feel exposed right now. Yeah. And also then the the petition, the request be the refuge that I believe you are, but it maybe doesn't seem like it. Is that correspond with what you're highlighting? That resonates deeply. I think in a similar way, we see this new Testament passage where again, I'll paraphrasing here, Jesus looks around and is like, are you going to leave too? Right? Nice. And the reply is where else would we go? You know, you have the words of life, which is yeah, a different John way. six, right? Yeah. A similar pattern of where else would we take refuge? Yeah. Statement of faith paired up with, well, if we had a better refuge, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we we'd go it. there, <laughs> you know, but which is, it feels very much in keeping with what, what happens when we all reckon with the pain that life brings us to this co- combined affirmation that we have no other God, but the one that we experience through the rhythm of our life in a very real way with a statement of faith that God must be more trustworthy than our experience allows, that God must be a refuge and a place of shelter, even when God has deeply let down our expectations of him just by being himself. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm exposed. And yet, God, you're the one I have to run to. 
even if that's not as sturdy as I might wish or doesn't feel as protective as I might wish because I feel exposed. That feels pretty real to human experience, right? Yeah, as the Psalms always are. The very first thing you said in that, as is often with, if any listeners are new to Ethan, which I'm, he's first time on the show, I'm sure there's some of you who don't know him. I mean, like, he's just always dropping truth bombs. And I'm like, whoa, stop there. Let me write that down. So that opening line, sorry about the pressure there, but you don't that's have to do it yeah. again. Well, it can be the last just, one. Yeah, you can get it out of the way if you yes, want. I try to only disappoint people at the rate they can stand. <laughs> so now I'll be disappointing people much faster. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but I say that even to listeners, like, Pay attention. There's going to be good stuff. And just that opening line that you then expounded upon so beautifully, but that opening line where you said, let me see if I can capture it. Cause I know you hate it when I ask you to say it again. You're just like, I don't know. <laughs> and you'll say it a different way. So I'll try to remember it. It was, we have no other God. So that's a statement of faith itself. We have no other God than the God we experience in the rhythms of our life. Mm-hmm. Otherwise God wouldn't be the creator. Right? Well, I, now I'm commenting. Mm-hmm. Just say it. Mm-hmm. We have no other God than the God we experience in the rhythms of our life. And yet the statement of faith that God is surely more than just what we experience. Yeah. Right? That's what I heard. That yeah. kind of paradox. And in one, some ways that aligns with, I'll, I'll say this as something that uh, a pattern that we've pointed out a lot as we've been going through the Psalms this summer is to notice the themes of God as creator and of God as covenant God, God who makes, who acts in history, establishes a people and acts again in faithfulness to that covenant, which includes also judgment. So it's kind of God as creator and judge, God as beginning and end, you know, and in many ways, your double statement there kind of maps onto that. Like if God is the creator, then there is no other God than just the God of the rhythms of our life, of the ups and downs and the sunsets and sunrises and the sickness and the health and the life and the death. That's just all God. Yeah. That means the bad times too. When we don't have refuge, that's all God. It has to be if he's the creator. (laughs) And yet at the same time, we have this covenantal relation of a God who intervenes and acts in a way that's beyond expectation or sometimes falls short of the expectation because he's made promises to us. And so it's almost like two kinds of faith, you know, creation faith and covenant faith is expressed in that twofold paradox that you put forward yeah. today. Does that resonate or it, does that it, seem it does. like a change of subject? <laughs> no, that seems that seems in keeping, I think, with the way that I've come to this text in terms of the situation of my recent experience, both with the Psalms and with, with God, right? So, the situation that I'm approaching this text with over the past several days and hours has been from sitting with people as they're in the midst of crisis when it mm-hmm. seems like the very thing that God's hand should stay yeah. is happening to them, right? And so sitting in, in waiting rooms and counseling offices, in the lobbies of, of um, lawyers' offices, where the very thing that they had asked God to prevent and to protect them from is happening to them. <laughs> yeah, And they're stating this. Essentially, God is my refuge. God is my refuge. Slash, please be my refuge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wondering really what is the point of prayer, which seems like a part of the instruction of Psalms to us is to demonstrate both with emotional texture and with candor and honesty what it means to live out of a centered life in prayer where you're mystified between the God you expect and the God who shows up and you're pulled by that tension and choose not 
to use that tension as an opportunity to disengage from relationship with God, but to present to God on one hand, here's who I remember you saying you would be, and here's how I expected that would play out in my experience as it relates to my pain, as it relates to things that are happening in my life that it would seem are in your interest and in the interest of wholeness for you to stop and to prevent and to be present in and to redeem and to heal. People who are wondering, What happens when I'm caught freshly in the space between the God that I expected and the God that all the promises seem to point to and the stunning lack of that God showing up in the waiting room, in the the marital counseling that I wanted to go well, in uh, the diagnosis that's about to come back that I assumed God would heal given my prayers. And are wondering, what is the purpose of prayer in a space where I'm not just orienting myself toward God's heart, which is part of the purpose of prayer. They can see that. But am I trying to change God's mind to convince him to become the kind of person he said he was already? And this this prayer seems to be in that situation. And maybe I'm isogenic based on yeah. my experience, almost certainly. But seems to be uh, to emerge from the that. Psalms are waving you in on that kind of wave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The line between isogenesis and exegesis is the most thin in the Psalms. Delightful. I'd say on, on the side, also in the Gospels, because he is risen, risen indeed. Yes. And so you can talk to the guy that you're reading about. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> Which so is like, great. Yeah. great. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful to malpractice <laughs> in a way that's expected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this good. is faithful malpractice. That's good. that's good. I really do believe that, though, that the, that the canon, you know, the Bible's not a book, it's a library. And so that means that different parts of, the, of this library invite you to read them differently. Yeah. You know, so you're actually faithfulness looks different to just give a stark example. The prophets are meant to shake you up and to call you out. Mm-hmm. And so anything, any tricks to kind of read into it, your own thinking are contrary to the point they're, they're meant to be jarring and critical to offer judgment and also offer promise. And so there, some of the Things that we think of as general rules about scripture, about saying, well, let the text speak to you. Don't read yourself into the text. Like there, okay, that's a good rule there because otherwise it'll be a strategy of avoidance. Yes. Whereas like in the Psalms, it's a strategy of avoidance to not read your own experience into the Psalm. Does that make sense? Like to actually say, oh, this is just sort of objective facts about this Psalmist experience. Like, I mean, some of them have little inscriptions and that's all we get. And they're very vague and probably added later. Yeah. (laughs) And this one doesn't even have an inscription. So the psalm is basically saying, do what you want with it. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote it. This yeah. is your psalm. Yes. Yes. Hear your own voice here or the voices of those around you as you're speaking, which takes a lot of empathy on your part. And there's a rich invitation, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing as I talk with especially emerging adults who are trying to find fresh reasons to commit to churches, part of what they're looking for when they read scripture and when they come to church is not just an experience of the transcendent, although that's part of it, but also to know that they have not been left off God's roster, right? (laughs) That when they leaf through the pages of scripture, they can see their name somewhere, right? To see there's someone that's included in the mission of God that really does have faith as small as me, who really does have questions and doubts around issues that are load-bearing in my life, Mm. uh, and who can bring those things into a conversation around scripture and into a community rooted in scripture, right? 
and know that they are not out of the game by yeah. having questions. This, I think the Psalm does that yeah. in many ways. And, and so that's, it's a beautiful invitation, I think. To and even more so as we read on. Yes. All right, so let's get the whole Psalm in our ears after a break. All right. Yeah. So let's take a quick break and then come back. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ethan Linder, and we're looking at Psalm 71. We're going to go ahead and read it again so it's fresh in our ears. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole. We kind of zoomed in at the beginning, but really to capture the fullness of this psalm, we want to hear the whole thing. So for various and sundry reasons, I'm going to do from the ESV. Partially, I'll tell one of the reasons. It's because I have some notes as that I was rereading and that was striking to me that I might might mention later if we get to it. But So here goes. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are the one who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, and with your glory all the day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all day long, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth, you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those Yet to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout with, for joy when I sing praises to you. 
my soul also, or my throat, (laughs) which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteousness all day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointment who sought to do me harm. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Yeah, so what are you noticing as we expand and look at the whole passage? What stands out to you? I think the reliance on memory as a formative thing feels interesting to me. There's a lot of that. A lot. And it kind of keeps coming back to it. It's not structured as a... Like some psalms will have kind of like the imprecations all together, like, you know, beat them up and shatter my enemies at it, and then a transition. But I will praise you, I will sing, right? Or I remember. Whereas here, it's much more back and forth, back and forth, except for the end is all praise. But in the middle, it's all kind of one verse, he's remembering what God has done. Next verse, he's complaining about what's going on now and asking God to help. Yeah. So yeah, let's look at where are some of those, those rememberings. Verse 15 is interesting to me. And then I renders yeah. it as saying, my mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day yeah. long, though I know not how to relate them all. And then in verse 18, even when I'm old and gray, don't forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, yes. your mighty acts to all who are to come. Just this idea that there's a, a, a tethering in some ways of the situations that the psalmist finds himself in, in which enemies are speaking things in, into his space, but also, I guess, not just, uh, not just speaking things, but attempting to work against his good, mm-hmm. where the psalmist is remembering God's ability to work in his benefit historically and to work in God's people's benefit for God's own glory. That feels worthy of remembering. Yeah. And just to add one, so if we were to do 15 and 18, there's also 16. Again, notice every other Mm. (laughs) verse, you know, it's all kind of mixed in. Because 16 is with the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come or process, you know, kind of enter into the sanctuary. I will remind them. So there's even that literal verb you were mentioning of remembering. Mm -hmm. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. And maybe one more, 24. My tongue will talk of your righteous help all day long. The righteous help. Most of that last section, 22 through 24, is the more kind of infinite praise of just God's goodness in general, right? But you get a little reference to something more specific in 24. Mm. You know, righteous help, right? The specific helping that you did, right? Not just your righteousness. I think I even misread it and said righteousness just Mm. because I'm so used to the kind of more generic statements of God's I mean, even God's attributes are never generic. They're tied to his specific revelation, but they can become, they can feel a little generic in the Psalms sometimes. So yeah, there's at least four verses that have these kind of remembering. And then on top of that, another quite a bit of general praise, but the very specific remembering of what God's done. Yeah. I like that. This, this is at least in my mind connected to part of the vocation of the worshiping community And I'm specifically thinking in our context of people who are post their career, right? They're after whatever it was that that they were. Is that like the polite way of saying old? Yes. Uh, It is (laughs) the polite way of saying old. Yeah. And then I ruined it by saying it. Yeah. But that's the language here. Time of old age. Time of old age. Right. And so this feels like a vocation that 
people often neglect, but is big enough to carry into their retirement, right? Of, yeah. of remembering the character of God, but then also rehearsing, recalling, and reminding the worshiping community of God's artifacts of faithfulness in a local community, but then in his character expressed in a group of people over time that reminds us of who we are as people who are responding to God's faithfulness. It feels very in keeping with the idea of what we do in corporate worship, in reciting, rehearsing, not just because the story of God is worthy of being enamored with and remembering, but that it actually shapes our way of being able to look for God in the present. And there's something unique that I'm noticing, at least in those who are in old age, when life is downsized, as some would say, right? A a friend of mine who's older said most of old age is just downsizing, right? Your house, your abilities, the things that you end up being able to tether to as Mm. markers of your identity are smaller. And most of us who are you know, in any age here. Your direct influence. Yeah. Your indirect influence often is expanding. Expanded. But, but people that, knowing it was that be you. a fair way to put yes. it? Yeah. yeah. Your direct indirect influence. influence is, your direct influence tends to downsize. Even feelings of agency and feelings mm. of um, my best possibilities are ahead of me, right, are, yeah. are downsized. And so this passage, you know, we hear, I think, a lot in churches, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself and my experience. I hear a lot in churches about what it means to have identity rooted in Christ, right? Which is all very good so long as we can hold on to all the other markers in our life. (laughs) That's a lot easier to say. Right. For me at 43. Than someone who's 85. For for me, that's saying don't over-identify with all these other abundant markers of identity that I have right now. Right. It's a very different message to say that to me right now. In a way, it, it implies there's a preparation for that era that needs to start now. So even though this is a, a psalm in reference to old age, it may, it's not just for old age, right? It's, it's inviting that awareness even now, you know, the generations to come who just need to hear this and remember it, not, not entirely understanding why, but tuck it away, Yeah, <laughs> you know, to those of us in our middle years to remember like, this is all temporary. <laughs> yeah. All of these identity markers. Yes. To not, and you've, surely seen that there are, there is great variation among those who enter into the retirement years. Yes. Those who are a little more ready to let go and those who weren't. Yeah. And it's a lot harder for the ones who like just started thinking about how, Oh, I have an identity other than my job and my role as a parent. And yes. Yeah. And I can remember what's a lot harder. Oh, And then there's some that seem like they're just flourishing and it's because they're like, yeah, I was ready to not have that stuff be core. Yeah. I was yeah. I, I did that and Yeah, you walk in I mean I walked in months or years ago now, but to a person who said I talked and thought a lot about having identity in Christ. And I'm glad I put enough deposits into that account over the years. <laughs> because That's a, a great phrase. It's all I have left. Oh right. They said this? Yes. Oh and my so, gosh. And I'm so, laughing because it's like so devastating, but also so powerful. Like, oh. There's also a joy in the Lord in that. It's like, wow. Yeah. Like when everything else is stripped away, right? What I have left is the person I've been becoming all along. And it's like literally the way we talk about saving up for retirement. It's about putting little deposits in as you go. Don't try to save for retirement real fast for five years at the end of, right? Just have those auto withdrawals. Sorry, I'm running with this. It's just a great illustration. Yeah. Wow. And so I don't know that we often find ourselves, even as we're enamored with the life of, of Christ, and it, which is to say uh, the God behind the Psalms way of being human, 
Like we, we are not necessarily overly enamored of actually practicing the disciplines that Christ gave us as it relates to lowliness and anonymously blessing. We mm. tend to be much more enamored with how Christian principles can get us where we already wanted to go. Yeah. Which is to say that that's a terrible preparation for old age in which, as the scripture says, you'll be taken by the hand where you don't want to go. Yeah. Right. John 21. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And so Our second reference to John today. Yeah, we yes. have you can to tell which gospel I keep out. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is oh. oh, just to just to be clear, yeah, John's proximity to the heart of God yeah. speaks to me of the kind of per- old person I want to be. So I camp out a lot in John. But this idea that part of the purpose of an, uh, an, a vocation that we can prepare for throughout our life that then becomes pretty resplendent and pretty clear to others, whether you prepared it or not, as you grow old, <laughs> yeah. is that there's a joy and a purposeness in growing old with your sense of the preciousness of God intact, even when he's acting in ways that are contrary yeah. to your hopes or not saving you from, again, the pain that life will inevitably bring mm-hmm. us to. And so that has been encouraging and has really tethered to my understanding of this song as it relates to a purpose that I hope is intact for me in my old age, and I'm trying to do dress rehearsal for now, which is to say, what does it mean to pass on the preciousness, one, the preciousness of God, really, like to look God in the eyes and to see God's way of being human in Jesus as the most fully human way we can be. But then two, to identify what does it mean to allow God's way of being human to convict me out of uh, my often uh, and frequent attempts to approach scripture as a way to protect myself from God's conviction. So hmm. God, God uh, be my refuge in whom I can hide. But, from you. No, yeah, no, yeah. From that's you, the, right? That's the preferred. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to shelter myself from God's way of saying what's true when it's costly. Hmm. And so that's what this song is. There is, there is a time in which we can no longer because we're stripped bare hide from the truth that costs us a great deal. And so this psalm, I think, That's gives us language. Work. Yeah. 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 To, to see what's true, even and maybe especially about God and ourselves, and then to be quick to repent and to say, God, even if you don't act the way that I think you should, mm-hmm. I will hide in you. Yeah, that's so good. I, I As I was reading today, I wonder if this kind of anticipation of the later years is – Perhaps one, if not the primary perspective in which this is written. I'm not entirely sh- like one way to read this is this is being, we don't know. We don't even have an author attached to it or a dedication of any kind. This could easily be written by someone in their later years, right? It has the wisdom of that. But it could be someone in their middle years who's experiencing the threat of the attacks on their reputation which seems so clear in the opening passages and in the imprecations that are sprinkled throughout. Because he's very clear. He really wants his enemies to be uh, exposed oh, and yes. shamed. Not oh, just yes. like quietly set aside. Yeah. It's like, I want them to, I mean, there is no inscription, but if, if I were like around at the time of Nehemiah, which is one of the theories of when these inscriptions might've been included, you know, when, when the, when the scriptures were starting to feel a little old and ancient and then they needed to explain to people, Oh, well this was during, time when this or that happened in David's life, you know, um, cause it doesn't always line up like, you know, uh, enough to think of those as, as original parts of the text, but they may have been like, we have headings in our Bibles. You could see how those could slowly get canonized in ancient texts, you know, mm. 
But if you if if I were to go in a time machine and the scribes were sitting around and were like, "Hey, we don't we, we need to put an inscription on seventy one here," some of the some of the younger rabbis were asking. You might might be like, "Well, this you know you could see this happening at David's life during the time of the Absalom rebellion." You know, so there he's not an old man exactly. He's older. But he's not old and spent, and he's feeling this attack, this shame, this this you know, and wanting to God to solve it and not him to take up arms against his own son. So someone who's experiencing their limits, whether physically or politically, whatever, right? Feeling their limits too early, mm. you know what I mean? Too soon. Mm -hmm. I can think, I, I wouldn't get into detail, but I can think of one particular friend who, you know, has just has had to age a lot <laughs> in too, too quickly, you know? Yeah. yeah. You ever had someone say to you, I bet they have knowing you, Ethan, if everyone ever, ever, anyone ever called you an old soul Oh yeah, <laughs> and I get that too. Yeah. And someone told me, uh, it was actually my predecessor in this very office we were recording said to me, cause she's had that set of her. And she mentioned, you know, someone told me once that an old soul is someone who had to grow up too fast. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa, mm. okay. I've been, I still don't know what that means entirely, but. I've been mulling over that. It was yeah. just a year ago now, the year ago this very week. What does that mean? What 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 part of youth did I skip or what kind of unexpected, you know, pain or trauma kind of like accelerated that growing up? Yeah. And I know there's definitely some parts of me that reach back to a certain kind of youthfulness to make up for something I missed, you know. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I don't know, just something to to meditate on, but that it's a way in for any listeners who are like, yeah, but I'm not at that stage. Well, you already made the point first. Yeah. You got to make those deposits now. Yeah. Now that's in small ways, but this is a nice reminder, but I wonder if the Psalm could even be from that perspective because he references back to youth and then forward to old age. It almost sounds like someone in the middle years looking back. You've always been with me and looking forward, Lord, I, I want to actually reach old age. Don't have it end too early. I don't know. I don't know if that if that resonates with you in your reading of the text, but I thought I'd just throw out that that one way of captioning this would be, you know, the middle years, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the, to use a phrase a great man once said, the second half of life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is second half of life work. Yes. You know, this psalm also in terms of situation of my reading again, like the text for me, the, uh, I'm sort of an expert on nothing but my own life experience and barely even that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think recently having, I, I read this text when I was situated in a place that's been very formative for me over the years. Uh, there's a, you know, old school Wesleyan folks will know about camp meetings, right? And so there's a camp meeting that's really, come into uh, this century, but uh, in a way that's been generative and helpful, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, who has taken the best parts of what it means to be a holiness tradition, perhaps, and emphasized those things without some of the experiential showmanship that can be true of some of those ex uh, laden uh, yeah. in some of those environments, right? And so I, I read this sitting right next to a place where I received an invitation, I think, uh, from God to, to faith in general, uh, where I received an invitation to ministry, right, for uh, the first time or some sort of service to the church, whatever that would mean, remembering myself and being called to remember. As a young man. Yeah. Now as you're 
approaching your second half of life. <laughs> yeah, what it means. Because right? you've been back, right? You go back, don't you? Every once in a while. Not okay. not usually. This is the first time in eight years. Wow. And so maybe nine. But So there was some remembering of your youth there. Yeah. And the ways in which one of the best antidotes uh, when God doesn't deliver in this in this way of rescuing from your enemies, right? As remembering again, the invitations of God to become more fully who God has you to be, right? Like, which yeah. seems, you know, which remember, which sometimes we get there by remembering those initial invitations and past deliverances. Yeah. That's what draws us back in. Yeah. What has God loosed me from in the past? And then what has God tied me to in the present? <laughs> right. Gosh. Um, that they can I keep instruct because you're so good. It's like, Oh, that's a whole sermon. Just that one sentence. Oh, there's a sermon. <laughs> yeah. There's a sermon what has God loosed me from in the past? What has he tied me to right now? Right yeah. now. Gosh, that's great. And that, what has he tied me to is, is part of that depositing for the future that we were discussing. Yeah. You start to realize like, Oh, I'm not actually bound to this thing or my binding to it is temporary. Yes. Sometimes we have, I think, we talk about lifelong calls into ministry so much, rightly so, but we sometimes can lose track of the importance of, of the temporary mission, like to be sent to a people in a place for a particular amount of time. Yes. Might not know how long, but those yeah. sendings are almost invariably temporary. You they know, are. Some of us have, have a calling of stability to serve in one place an entire lifetime, mm-hmm. but modern life does not support that very well. You know, so you really need clarity of divine calling to pull one of those vows off. You do. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> situational know. providence, right? That God would Absolutely. invite you and make it possible. But that's and I, even in the middle ages, that was a special the call of stability that the monks took. The the fact that they took a vow implies that other people didn't do that. Yes. See, right? like, yeah. like, so like so think about a vow. The, the vow is a sign of something abnormal, yeah. something, something unique, something that's a calling. So whereas, you know, the, the vocation to marriage, for instance, which has vows, that's the stability of the partner. Yeah. Um, not necessarily of a place, right? So if this family needs to move or this family needs to take on a new occupation, it's actually an act of faithfulness to the vow to do it, you know? Right. Right. And that's, that's, I think what's helpful to learn sometimes is uh, as we think about what God's tied us to, there may be institutions and there may be communities, but almost always what God's called us to that old people are really good at remembering, I would say, <laughs> is that God's called us before any position of influence uh, or before any specific expression of a vocational calling. God's called us to people in front of us in love. That's mm. enough to age into. Most of us have enough hangups, frailties, faults, and, you know, quirks that we could pretty much live the rest of our life on that mission and not quite achieve it. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's, that's enough of a sign. Yeah. Everything else is just... Special, special, uh, tasks. Yep. That's just As signing assigned. up, signing yeah. up yeah. a ta- ta- yeah. yes. other duties. Other <laughs> That's assigned. right. Or, uh, a, a, a task force, a temporary task force yes. to accomplish an objective for a little while. Which is to love. Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Ethan Linder, and we are looking at Psalm 71. Psalm 71. So let's explore some sermon starters. Where would you go with this text? Say you were usually first time guest. I kind of have this little setup where I'll say, all right, your friend, you know, has fallen ill or has had, you know, maybe some trouble in life, needs a break, needs you to cover for him. You got a couple days to prep. 
bulletins are already printed. Psalm 71 is the text. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Where do you, you know, like, what's your focus? You know, even if you don't, you know, you can't have a whole sermon in a moment, but where would you run? What direction would you take? Where would you focus your, your energies uh, in a sermon on Psalm 71? Yeah, I think sometimes it depends on what part of the sermon comes first to me often, like how I end up writing it, which is well, interesting. Well, tell me that. So some, how do they come? Do they come different ways, the every, first part? Almost every time it's a little bit different, <laughs> right? So I'll write, I'll always write the focus of the sermon, the function of the sermon, and the future of the sermon, right? Like, what do I want to say? What, what should that accomplish? And then what might a brighter picture of the future be? If we were able to accomplish that so together as a community, for our listeners, focus, and for me, focus would be like the substance of the yep. point. The what topic. are we looking okay. at here? Okay. Right. Focus. The, the function is why, like, why would we even okay. talk about this? You know, is this a waste of 25 minutes, right? Or much more in some cases. And then the future is if people actually like encounter nice. the gospel, this is a, this is not me. So this is it's just to be though, clear, but it's, it's a nice twist on, because if all you do is function, it makes it sound like the sermon's all about human action. Yes. It's all about, what you are supposed to do. And yeah, sure. That's in there, but it's also the future says, okay, what's the the future that's promised if we cooperate with this grace. Yeah. And that may and will include divine actions beyond what the listener can do. Yeah. That's a lovely little triplet. And I think yeah. it's a Thomas G long thing. That's so I think good. it's a, yeah, he's, yeah, he should be credited for that. Uh, well, I'm so form obsessed as can be, as is revealed with, the way I preach and the way I execute scripture, I'm always about like, so I always, that's always my third F, you know, <laughs> how do you like yeah. put it form, form. and structure? Yeah, the and you've heard me preach. They're highly structured. Like they have a very oh, like, so helpful uh, structure to them. The structure is the point. And part of it is, but they don't, the I text, don't paint right? a, I don't paint the future. Well, that's not one of my strengths and I'm okay with that. I'm just saying like, I'd like to get better at that. And you do that. I think it helps because when I've heard you preach, so I'm going to compliment you or analyze you a bit of both at once right now. Like you have a lot of like practical instruction. So your sermons, I should come away feeling guilty from your sermons, but I never do. And I wonder if this future thing's part of it because it's often painted as, wouldn't this be cool? (laughs) Like kind of a, you're painting a future for us that you're inviting us to live into rather Mm -hmm. than a, Here's 26 things to do to be a better Christian. Because actually, if you stripped your sermons down to core, that kind of is what they are. <laughs> There's a lot of mm-hmm. practical instruction, yeah, which usually makes me feel really guilty and demoralized, usually. Mm. But yours don't. So, And I've always wondered what it is. And I just thought it was your smile or something like that, your presence. And I'm sure that's a big part of it. But I wonder if this future is part of it. Yeah, I think there's something that's baked into the scriptural witness that has a claim on the world. And I really do think that that means that there's a framework that's not linear, but that uh, of ways to be human in the way that Jesus was human. Yeah. It's actually in the text. Yeah. As Steve no, Lennox would say, like in the grain of the scripture. Yeah, I'm glad you're so dang practical. It's what I want to hear. Yeah, I'm up in my head all week. I need to hear someone tell me, here's how to live it. And but in a way that doesn't demoralize. And I think it's that future hope that is part of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I hope, that I hope lighter, so. That instead of a heaviness, a weight, it's a, it's a hope. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful? Yeah. If we live this way. Yeah. And so I think I'd be tempted to do something with this text that was uh, in keeping with the dual picture of God that it presents, right? Okay. That God can be counted on, but not in the way that we hope, right? Always. Yeah. That, that God can be a refuge in whom we trust that will expose us both, one, to the pain that life brings, and two, uh, to really difficult reflection on where God's been. And how God might be inviting us through our own story, through our own pain, 
through our own frailty to press into what faithfulness means and requires. And so I think I'd be tempted to, you know, you can do an introduction a lot of different ways, but I think one would be uh, to pair the two forms of, of introduction that I love the most, which one is to ask a question and two is to start a fight. And so, uh, and I love both of those forms of introduction because it's often just a mix in of pitches from here's what the text says and can we read it together? If we're mixing up our pitches, there's something that's helpful that Jesus does, I think, in his preaching brilliantly, which is to meet them at the level of core human need or to say in a religious community what goes often unsaid but frequently thought. And so in this case, you might introduce a sermon and start a sermon by saying, what do you do when the God that you expected is not the God that shows up. What do you do when the God who is your refuge exposes you in your life to deep pain that you thought he would be interested in preventing, right? When God's refuge feels like a broken umbrella. There it is. I mean, that's a tactile thing, right? And you could even start with a story about a broken umbrella. Like, why is it that uh, I'm standing here with the exact thing that's supposed to protect me from becoming damp, and yet I go home drenched? You know, you ever feel that yeah, way in your yeah. relationship with God that, I mean, that could, it's, it's a cheap connection, but it works. I think like it in turn, but, and, and I think it becomes, uh, initially it's like, oh, a broken umbrella seems like such a small thing. But when people go home, they have a reason to look at their umbrella differently and remember God's faithfulness. <laughs> so that's one way I think you could go. Another one I think is probably talking about the Christian vocation of remembrance. Yeah. And the idea that within a community, part of our function is to not just rehearse, not just reenact and not just think about, oh, that was, you know, God was really good back then. Good for them, you know, Mm -hmm. but to think there's something instructive about God's character that can make the faithfulness of God load bearing, even when God's action doesn't protect us in the way we thought. And so to talk about past deeds of God, am I being called right now Mm -hmm. to recount and to whom? Not just in the general. Yeah. That is a vocation. Yeah, how do you start? I wonder if these are two of the same sermon, just where you pick it up from. Because in many ways, that's at the heart of the response. What do you do when, mm-hmm. you know, God is your refuge and yet God shows up, but not in the way expected to use that frame. Well, when expectation throws you a curveball, you remember, you remember, you remember, you remember, right? So like, that might be a, a nice setup for the second half of the sermon. I don't know. Maybe you weren't thinking I think, no, two I think, of the same sermon, but more kind of two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that helps. And I also think another fun. Do you often start your sermons like at the beginning or is that occasional? It's occasional. It really depends. Like a lot of it is that really. My the, wife almost always does. Like she, it's the start of the sermon. That's why mm-hmm. she's so freaking good. Yeah. The worst sermons start, they're being written at the beginning and the best in my observation of other preachers. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? The weak ones where you're like, Hey, cool illustration. And then a bunch of fluff, you know, you can tell all they had was an intro and they didn't have anything to deliver with it. But then you get those pros. Like my wife is that where it's like, she has this inspired intro and then that's her kind of way in. Yeah. She works on a text and it's angles and then just keeps the creativity coming for the whole sermon. But that opening hook it's just, whereas my hook is the last thing I come up with. I write a sermon and then I'm like, oh yeah, what's this sermon about? Yes. <laughs> yes. The worst though. I love that. Because <laughs> I'm all that. about the form of it. I mean, I know what it's about, but it's, I'm forming it and shaping it and like discovering the central point as I go. Yes. 
hopefully all that's before I get around to actually preaching. Hopefully. But sometimes it's not. No, sometimes, it <laughs> sometimes it's still just, sometimes I'm still discovering it. You send the, the all moment, church email Monday and you yeah. say, here's by what the way, I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Usually by that morning, I've got it, but <laughs> yeah, that's huge. It matters a lot. Yeah, I so think, your your starting point does move around. It depends. It on does. It sometimes yeah. like I think my big question is like is often is I paint the, the future thing right, and again, I'm just learning this stuff. So this is not like yeah. oh, I have not attained mastery or close in these things, and so it's fun to play around with it and learn from other people like you or Mandy or other people that uh, Dave obviously isn't Dave Ward is another person that I turn to pretty frequently, but. But also Cleophus LaRue and other like other people and uh, that I sort of have in the ecosystem of preaching that is broad and interdenominational. Barbara Brown Taylor, Frederick Beekner, other people who uh, who have been instructive to me in terms of their way of approaching the text. But I find if I'm starting at the beginning, usually it's because I'm, I'm asking the question, why did I ever get interested in this? Mm. So the first thing I start with is the the picture of what people's life could actually be like if the implications of the gospel and the humanity of Jesus were applied to them as it relates to this chapter and verse, right? Wow. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, to assume that people are already doing their best. Uh, And so what we do in the pulpit is not to like chastise people or assume that they're not trying because if this is going to legitimately make their life better, which it should, and if uh, it requires a different set of skills we should assume that they would do it if they had that and they were mm-hmm. exposed to that. But usually I think it's tempting to think, well, people just don't get it. Yeah. And it's like, no, we just haven't let them to inv- like see. And, and I do this with myself. I haven't led myself to see how this is actually good news. Yeah. Cause then you want to tell it. Yeah. Most people are actually trying, or should I say most of those who are going to actually listen to your sermon anyway are already trying mm-hmm. So <laughs> obsessing over the ones who aren't receptive is a fool's errand. <laughs> it is. It Some is. of us are called to that kind of evangelistic work, but not all of us can pull it off with the same panache. But. No, no. Yeah. So that core human need here, you identified right out of the gate, the very beginning of our conversation, which is such a great thing to look for when studying a text. Mm-hmm. Um, that need for safety was the word you named. Yeah. And so even just exploring around that, like what are, how does God meet that need? How does God subvert that need? What are the core human practices of making God our refuge? Which doesn't always mean feeling safe. No. True refuge. And obviously remembering, praise. I also think there's... I think that vocation of remembering then becomes that central practice. That's the practical payoff of the sermon, whether that's towards the end or woven throughout. It'd be hard to do this sermon and not land there. I, I think there's a lot of fertile soil here in imagining with a congregation, if it's safe to do so, Ways in which these needs, when not met mm. in God, are met somewhere else. Ooh. So, pretty much most of the last several years of <laughs> um, of uh, Christians behaving badly, which should be some sort of Hulu yeah, series, right, I'm sure, a Netflix right. series, is has been a misuse of fear and control. Yeah, uh, which most religions, be clear, like engage, like, and and when we we you know approach through religious lens, fear and control, and try to apply power and manipulation as the ways to meet the needs for safety and for secure attachment. Like we end up seeing all kinds of things that we've seen in the news uh, happen in churches. And so every church, you could even start a sermon by saying, you know, every community deals with their feeling of exposure and a need for control somehow. 
Yeah. Some of them are really intentional about it in ways that lead to life and fruit and peace. Some are manipulative and destructive in ways that lead us to become less fully ourselves. What do, what do you damage do? Damage others and ultimately damage ourselves. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we become those who others need refuge from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. That's an introduction in itself, yeah. I think. It's, it's a very that's, raw and honest that's one. That's a pick a fight one. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I like that. The two of your favorite ways to start a sermon. Ask a question, pick a fight. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great, that, yeah. that alone's worth the whole this good, whole this good. whole hour. That's great. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Ethan. I learned so much from you and with you um, as we were entering into this text. It was just absolutely lovely. So appreciate your time that you gave. Oh, this uh, is beautiful. Want to say thanks to our production team as always, uh, especially Todd Bouchong, who does the work week in and week out. Can't imagine doing this show without you, Todd. Uh, thanks to all our listeners of the show, but especially those who support the show, which we call our patron saints. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see different levels that you can donate to the show. I don't see a cent of that. I have a day job. That's just to help uh, the production team behind the scenes who, who do this as a ministry and see it that way, but a little compensation doesn't hurt. Don't muzzle the ox as <laughs> Paul says. So uh, yeah. So thanks to Tom Adamson for uh, doting the theme music. And uh, last of all, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. 